Good morning. As we continue on in our Sunday sermon series, The Church as Diaspora, we've been looking how the early church, as she was dispersed throughout the known world, uh, took the gospel and advanced the kingdom of God. And we can learn from that here in the 21st century, uh, as the church has experienced her own dispersion during the coronavirus event, and how God can use us to continue to advance the kingdom of God. This morning, we're going to look at the book of Acts, chapter 18, as Paul and his ministry companions went to the city of Corinth in Greece. And we're going to focus on two points, how they made disciples of Jesus Christ where there was fruit, and the accompanying fear that came alongside of that. I think that's something uh, many Christians can relate to. We live in a culture of disciple-making. Uh, at this very moment, you are surrounded by people who want to make you their disciple. They want you to see the world as they see it. They want you to follow them where they're leading you. Uh, there are people out there that are wanting you to become a disciple uh, in terms of how you were to vote in, in the upcoming election and, and this week as we've experienced um, the chaos and the fear that comes along with that. Uh, there are people who want to tell you how to vote in the election. There are also people who um, are telling you how to handle the coronavirus, wear a mask, social distance, wash your hands. There are people who are telling you how to uh, invest your money, what social cause you should be a part of, the BLM movement and others. And the, everyone around you, uh, including yourself, is in an environment where we are being made a disciple and many people are making a disciple of the people around us. And you ask the question, what kind of disciple does God want you to make? Um, how would you recognize who God wants you to make a disciple of his? And so the question is really not in our culture, um, are we going to be, become a disciple? Everyone around us is trying to make us a disciple of one way or the other. The question is really, um, what type of disciple are you going to become? Because we're all disciples of someone. We're all disciples of something. And so what disciple are you going to be um, following? And who are you going to be making disciples of? And in that experience of making disciples, I think that there's a lot of fear that comes along with that experience. We experience fear in our culture uh, on a heightened level today during the um, extraordinary uh, event of the coronavirus and the resurgence of the wave of people um, getting diagnosed. Uh, we wonder if we're going to get a stimulus plan, uh, the political election chaos that has uh, been surrounding us during this season, and uh, some of us worry, is the stock market going to crash again? There's a lot of fear that's going around in our culture. I wonder the role fear plays in the Christian life. I wonder... Um, that one of the greatest barriers to the Christian faith, to um, us accomplishing the mission that God wants us to accomplish, to make disciples of Jesus Christ, that perhaps fear is one of the greatest barriers to that happening. Um, I was watching a YouTube video just the other day, and it just kind of came up on my page, so I thought it was interesting, and I clicked it. I was a journalism major in college, and so I listened to people's words very closely. And I, there was this one exchange between the person that was um, interviewing uh, another person, a guest on their show, and I want to read to you the quote that these two people had um, in exchange. And, and keep in the back of your mind, uh, what kind of disciples are these people trying to make, and what kind of fear or courage do they have in this experience? Um, the guest... The person being interviewed said this, quote, if I have to take a little bit of heat 
and a little bit of flack for taking a stand, so be it. Somebody has to do it. The interviewer heard that, and he said back to the person he was interviewing this, quote, totally, I think you framed this perfectly. The first article I ever wrote was called Holders of Revolutionaries. We are in a war, he said. This war is the moment that uh, we are uh, experiencing. And you need someone courageous to stand up. You need someone who is willing to sacrifice reputation because they know what is true. They know what they believe in is right. That is what we all do, the holders, the Bitcoiners. We are part of keeping the flame alive. We are the keepers of the flame. We represent something. We are very important. This isn't just a revolution to innovate uh, something in technology or in human rights. Money is the most fundamental component to all human life. Here are these two people talking about making disciples of the Bitcoin revolution that's happening in our world. And they're talking about the importance of stepping forward overcoming your fear and saying, this is what I believe and this is what I think the world should be about. And it just struck me how courageous the world is in making disciples. And I wonder, um, is the church courageous in making disciples um, that God wants? And so we're going to look at our passage in Acts chapter 18, verse 1 through 17. I'm going to go ahead and read it and give a little background and summary, and then we'll get to our points. Um, Acts chapter 18, verse 1 through 17. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you or harm you. For I have many people in this city who are my people. And he stayed there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Verse 12. When Galileo was pro-council of Acacia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or a vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names of your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them out from the tribunal, and they all seized Susanus, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to this. Acts chapter 18, verse 1 through 17. Uh, let me give a little background on what's happening here. I'm going to summarize this passage. Um, background. The Apostle Paul 
has uh, come to uh, Corinth from Macedonia. Macedonia is the biblical name for what we call southern, uh, northern Greece right now. And remember, Paul and his ministry team of Silas, Timothy, and Luke came to Macedonia. And uh, they did ministry in uh, Philippi, Berea, Thessalonica, and uh, they started churches there. And Paul went, moved on to the southern area of Greece, which is called in the Bible Acacia. And he came to Athens in Acts 17, the chapter before this. And he ministered there to, at the Areopagus Hill to the uh, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, led some people to Christ. And uh, he moved away. He moved away from Athens about 50 miles southwest, now to the city of Corinth in southern Greece. Corinth was a very important city in Greece. It was a port city, so there were sailors coming in all the time. There was Jews, there was Gentiles. It was really um, a city that was known for her sin and debauchery. Very important city. Uh, she was a center of commerce, a center of, um, of politics there in Greece. And the Apostle Paul ended up staying in Corinth uh, for this long stay of 18 months. He went back a little bit later on. Uh, but he stayed for 18 months during this stay, a year and a half, and that's longer than any place he stayed in ministry on all of his missionary journeys, except for Ephesus and Rome. And so Corinth was an extremely wicked place that needed the gospel. And in our passage, Acts 18, 1 through 17, what happens is that Paul comes uh, to Corinth, and he meets uh, a ministry couple named Aquila and Priscilla. And he, uh, they probably were Christians before he met them. And he built them up in the faith. Faith. They were fellow tent makers, and um, they did ministry together. Priscilla and Aquila were a powerhouse ministry couple. Uh, when you look throughout uh, the rest of Paul's epistles, it says that they did ministry not only in Corinth, but in Ephesus and Rome, and I'm sure many other places as well. The Apostle Paul, while he's in Corinth, starts to go uh, follow his uh, missionary strategy. When he goes into a city with Jews, he would find the Jewish synagogue. And he would start reasoning from the scriptures about how Christ was Jesus. And it says that um, he ministered to Jews and God-fearers in the synagogue. Now, obviously, the Jews that were there for the synagogue. Um, but who were the God-fearers? They were um, Greeks who uh, became, uh, came to worship the, uh, the God of the Jews and to obey and listen to the scriptures. But they hadn't become circumcised, the men. And so they hadn't fully proselytized to the Jewish faith, but they worshipped the Jewish God. And so uh, they were allowed the Greek, uh, God-fearing Greeks into the Jewish synagogue. So Paul ministers to them there. And um, it says that Silas and Timothy joined Paul at some point. Now, remember, uh, Silas and Timothy, Paul had sent them from Athens back to northern Greece in Macedonia. And we know that um, Timothy was in Thessalonica. From 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, Timothy was sent to Thessal uh, the church of Thessalonica uh, to check in on them, see how they're doing, to build up the church. Uh, Silas was sent somewhere into Macedonia. Maybe that was Philippi. Maybe that was Berea. Um, but they nevertheless join Paul now again in Corinth. And as Paul testifies that the Christ was Jesus in the synagogue, the Jews rise up, many of the unbelieving Jews, and they oppose Paul. They drive him out of the synagogue, and he says, you know what? Your blood is on your own hands, my brethren. Paul was Jewish, as you know. Uh, your, my, your blood is on your own hands. I am innocent. From now on, Paul says, I go to the Gentiles. So he goes next door to the house of a man named uh, Tidius Justus, and he's a Greek, 
and he goes to his house and Titius Justus and his household become Christian. And Crispus, a man who was the leader of the synagogue, he actually becomes a Christian. And we know from 1 Corinthians chapter um, 1 uh, that um, Crispus was ended up being baptized by Paul. 1 Corinthians 1 or, or chapter 2, right in the beginning of uh, 1 Corinthians. And, um, and so that would have been an uproar, I'm sure, to the Jews. And it is at this point, God gives Paul a vision. Our passage says that God came to Paul in a vision and he said, um, Paul, do not be silent. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, Paul. Do not be silent. Continue to speak out in my name. For I have many people in this city and no one will harm you. Do not be afraid, Paul, the Lord said to him. Uh, it was later on that the Jews brought a united attack against Paul and um, they brought him to a tribunal, a man named Gallio, who was uh, a judge, uh, kind of a city official in Corinth. And they brought him to an area called the judgment seat um, the, where the tribunal, Paul was going to be tried. Um, I, myself and Lorraine had, uh, myself and Lorraine had an opportunity to go to Corinth last year. And I'm just going to show you one picture. This is a picture of the Bema seat, the judgment seat where Paul would have been brought uh, before um, the Gallio, the pro-council. And it's just a, a kind of a rock formation, a, a, a foundation that's elevated, and there's these rocks that stand up. And so this is where cases were judged in Corinth, and Paul would have been brought here. There's also a stone that is at, uh, that was put later on uh, at this tribunal site where there's a Greek transcription as well as a um, English transcription of a passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, where Paul says, um, this light and momentary affliction uh, will prepare us for an eternal weight of glory that is to come. And so, uh, what an appropriate passage for that place. Um, and so, the Jews bring Paul to Gallio, and the charge was Paul was teaching them to worship a God, worship God in a way that was contrary to the law. Gallio is a shrewd politician. He looks at this and he says, you know what? If Paul was making a disturbance in terms of violence or some other kind of civil disturbance, I would make a judgment. This is an issue of your own law. You guys decide. And at the end of the passage, uh, the Jews brought Susanus. Uh, he's the new ruler of the synagogue after Crispus must have had to step down when he became a Christian. And they uh, they beat Susanus, uh, assumedly because the Jews were upset that uh, they were humiliated, that Paul wasn't going to be touched. And so you always blame the leader, right? Um, but we know from uh, 1 Corinthians that um, Susanus actually became a believer. And so... Um, that is the summary of the passage. And I want to draw two points from this passage. Um, one about how Paul and his ministry team went about making disciples of Jesus Christ where there was fruit. And the accompanying fear that came with that. Um, if you go back to our passage, again, in verse 4 and verse 5, when Paul went into the synagogue, it says he reasoned with them. And he was occupied with the word. And he testified that the Christ was Jesus. Uh, Paul went into the synagogue, he taught the word, he testified to Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. Um, he called for them to believe, and uh, some of them got, ended up getting baptized in the end. Uh, and Paul made disciples 
wherever he went. He made disciples of Jesus Christ here in Corinth. I think in the church it's easy for us to um, lose sight of God's ultimate mission for our life. Uh, I think some Christians, uh, we, we come to faith, we believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead on the third day and choose to follow him as Lord, Hebrews, uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 9. And, and then we think, you know, that's kind of the end goal that God has for me, is I just make my profession of faith, I'm saved from the kingdom of darkness, I'm saved from eternal damnation, and I'm now transferred to the kingdom of the Son of God, uh, I'm forgiven for my sins, and now I go to heaven. I, I think some Christians, it's very easy for us to see that as the end goal that God has for our life. Certainly that salvation is in that respect. Uh, if that was the end goal for your Christian journey here on earth, then when you made your profession of faith, you would immediately have been taken up to heaven because the end goal has been accomplished. And so while it's the end goal in terms of eternity, it's not the end goal in terms of your life and journey here as a Christian. And so some of us, we, we might say, hey, it's not just about my profession of faith, but it's also about me now attending a church, me finding a church so I can attend a Sunday worship service. And that's a great thing. It's an important thing. We are commanded to do that. Hebrews chapter 10, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us continue to uh, meet and encourage and spur one another on towards love and good deeds, all the more as we see the day of Jesus' return approaching. Hebrews 10. Uh, but that's not really the ultimate goal either, is it? It's not just becoming saved or becoming part of a church. And so maybe we go to this next step and we say, well, my ultimate goal now is God wants me to be involved in a cause to bring about social change, to work in the world, to defend the life of the unborn, to work in the world to um, address issues of the environment, to work in the world to help the poor, to have clean drinking water, to have food or clothing, um, to uh, work in the world to uh, promote not hate but love between people of different races, to work in the world to, to help... Uh, uh, close the gap between rich and poor. There's all these numbers of causes that um, the world wants us to be a part of. And in general, those causes in a general way can be very good things. But I think that they're not ultimate things. Um, and if you're out there and you think that becoming a Christian is um, being on a journey where your ultimate goal is simply to make a profession of faith, go to church, become part of a cause in the world, um, I want to say to you this morning that not only are you wrong, but you are massively wrong. You are, I am putting my arm around your shoulder, looking you in the eye and saying to you, you are massively wrong. What God wants for your life is that the ultimate goal the ultimate mission of our life here on earth is not just all of those things. It is to um, make disciples of Jesus Christ. It is call people to follow you as you follow Jesus Christ. Um, and it's not everyone we can do that with, right? There are certain, some people are open to you and some people will not be open to you. Um, in verse 6, it says, When the Jews opposed Paul in the synagogue, uh, they reviled him, and it's at that point he shook off his garments. He said, your blood be on your own hands. Um, I'm innocent. I'm going to go to the Gentiles now. And Paul went to make disciples where there was fruit, where people were open to it. The idea of biblical fruit, um, good things that come out of our endeavors in ministry empowered by the Holy Spirit, the idea of 
A biblical fruit is defined in many ways in the New Testament. It's defined as a change in our character. It's defined as the good works that we do. It's defined as the speech that we speak, the righteous speech that we speak through the Lord's power in our life and presence. It's defined as uh, us giving thanks to God in, in singing and praise. It's defined as God rewarding us for the financial giving that we give to his kingdom and his church. But fruit is also defined as um, through your efforts and through the Lord leading you to the people he is choosing to draw to himself, uh, the, God um, uses you and you choose to become available to lead others to Christ. And leading others to Christ and having God draw them to himself is called biblical fruit. And that's what Paul did. When the Jews were not open, he said, um, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. I'm just going to go to whoever is open to the gospel. Um, and we have seen this in our church recently. Uh, we had a baptism service uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, a lot of people showed up, and we baptized three people. And one of the people, that uh, a couple that was baptized, uh, they invited some friends. And one of the friends that they invited brought their child, uh, an 11-year-old boy. And after the baptism service, um, this 11-year-old boy came up to me, and he said, Hey, you know, I just have a few questions about God. I have a few questions about church. And I was just so struck because when was the last time an 11-year-old just came up to you, didn't know you, did not have a church background, and just was at this baptism service, didn't even understand what was happening, and then they come up to the pastor and say, I have some questions about God. And so I just sat down on the sand with him, and we talked for like 10 minutes, and I you know, did my best to answer his questions about who the Lord was and who Jesus is and our need for Jesus and um, how he saves us and loves us and changes us both now and all of eternity. And he was really intrigued. He wanted to learn more. And so I prayed for him, and I invited him to church. I, I introduced myself to uh, his parents, and, um, and we said, uh, you know, we'd love to have you come out. Well, they came out to church the following Sunday, and we went out to lunch afterwards uh, with a whole bunch of us. And I was talking with this little boy again, and he said, you know what, thank you. Thank you um, for um, introducing me to God because I've been praying to God all week because I was having, he said he was having nightmares about people uh, like attacking him, and he would pray to God at night, and those nightmares would go away. Praise God. And so I heard that, and I told him that is the Lord's uh, work in wanting him to um, give his life to the Lord, and the Lord is mighty, and he's showing that in his life. And so I took out a, a pen and a piece of paper, and I started writing down a few scriptures, and I gave it to him and his, his dad, and I said, I, I'd love for you, um, this young man to take that, tape it to his wall, and read these scriptures every night, next couple weeks. Well, um, they're going to come to church this Sunday, and it was through that encounter, and also um, another young girl who was at the baptism who wanted to know about the Lord that we started a kids' outreach Bible study. Uh, within one week of this conversation, we started it, and these kids are in the Bible study, a couple kids in our um, church. And, uh, and I just heard, we just had our first meeting, and I heard it went fantastic. So, um, but going to make disciples where there is fruit, very, very important that we look for that in the church. There's another example is, um, there was someone from our church who recently brought a friend who was in their class, and... Um, and, you know, we went out, we went and talked to uh, this friend and uh, this past week before the service, um, we were just praying for this person and said, Lord, would you continue to reach out to uh, this person and, and just draw them to yourself? We want to make disciples where there is fruit. Uh, I was talking with my daughter, Darcy, and 
she was saying how, you know, how do you make disciples? And I just said, you know, it's really simple. All you have to do is find people who um, are open to following you as you follow Christ. And you just teach them what you're learning from the Bible, and you just invite them to follow you as you serve the Lord and obey the Lord. And that's all, all it is to make a disciple of Jesus Christ. Everyone can do that who's a follower of the Lord. And uh, so she was really encouraged and said she was going to continue to do that with some of the other children around her. Making disciples where there's fruit. That's what the Apostle Paul and his ministry team did. But they also had fear amidst this experience. Um, it says in verse 9 that the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid. Um, keep on speaking, Paul. Don't be silent. I'm with you. No one will attack you or harm you. I have many people in the city. I think the Lord came to Paul in that moment because he knew that Paul was, was not only the super apostle, but he was also uh, just a man who experienced anxiety, who experienced fear, um, just like we all do as human beings. And Paul experienced fear um, when he was making disciples of Jesus Christ. He would have had to uh, because he was a human being. The Jews who opposed the apostle Paul um, persecuted him on his first missionary journey in the uh, island of Cyprus, on the country of Turkey, and on Paul's second missionary journey. Um, you see them doing the same thing when Paul was in Macedonia, when he was in Acacia, and the Jews came, would find out where Paul was, and they would run him out of town. They would oppose him. They would beat him. They would throw him into prison. And that must have incited fear in Paul. In fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that not only was he beaten and persecuted for um, declaring Jesus Christ, but he also had daily, he says, on him the anxiety that comes from his concern over all the churches that he ministered to. So Paul had fear and he had anxiety. And, um, you know, if you're out there and you look at the Christian faith and you're thinking that um, if you become a Christian, well, you now have God on your side. You now recognize that God is big, he's strong, he's powerful, and you are a child of God. And because you know all of that now as a Christian, if you think that fear and anxiety in your Christian journey is, is not going to be a part of it, um, if you think that your Christian journey is going to be easy because God is for you and not against you, um, let me tell you that there is nothing that is easy about the Christian faith. There is nothing that is easy about simply following Jesus week after week, month after month, year after year, and thinking just because God is for you, God is big and strong and powerful, and you are his, that you will not have fear, you will not have anxiety. Following Jesus is not an easy thing. It requires us to pick up our, deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow him daily. And sometimes that is in opposition to the world around us. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, if they hated me, what? They will hate you as my followers. And so um, the Christian faith is not only about peace, love, joy, and goodness. It is also about dealing with our fears and our anxiety that come up, not just in our everyday life of our health or our finances or of our relationships. Those are common, everyday things we struggle with uh, almost daily. But also our fears and anxiety of what's happening in uh, the spiritual realm and the spiritual forces that come against us or... Um, that want to stop the good work of God in us and through us. And I think for many of us, uh, we experience this fear when it comes to making disciples. Um, fear is one of the greatest barriers to making disciples of Jesus Christ in the entire Christian experience. Our fear 
uh, it looks many different ways. Some of us, we don't want to make disciples of Jesus Christ because we fear what other people will think of us. We fear, fear that they will reject us, that um, they will uh, think differently about us. We fear that um, if we go out and share our faith, people will ask us a question that we don't have the answer to. We fear that if we devote ourselves to doing the Lord's work, um, there's just going to be this FOMO, this fear of missing out that kicks in about what we're missing in terms of uh, devoting ourselves to the things of the world as opposed to making disciples of Jesus Christ. And I think that sometimes... Some, some of us, we have this fear that um, we're in reality ashamed of Jesus at some level to call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ. Maybe people will see that we're weak, that we need to crutch, which is absolutely true. Um, the issue is not um, do we need a crutch. Everybody needs a crutch in life. It's which crutch do you choose to help you through life. And we choose Jesus in the church. And so um, I think that fear can be one of the greatest barriers to making disciples. And I, can, I get it. I, I get why. Because when you look at Paul's ministry here, what was he doing? He's sharing the word. He was sharing about Jesus Christ. He was calling people to believe and declare that through public baptism. And as you go forward and make disciples of Jesus Christ, um, what are you really saying to people that could incite fear in you? Uh, you're saying to a world around you, I want to share with you the word of God. There's this book that God has written, that he has inspired and given to us, that is um, perfect and without error, and this is the one true revelation of God in terms of his truth. Uh, and you're saying that to a world around you um, that is spiritual and good. They're just not religious. That's what they believe. many of us believe about ourselves. We don't need a book. We don't need a tradition. Uh, we don't need organized religion. And so that's what you're saying as a Christian to a, a culture that's spiritual and good and just not religious. And then you go on to say to this culture, um, not only is there this, this revelation from God called the Bible, but it tells us about a savior. You need to be saved. You cannot save yourself. You're trying to be a savior, you're trying to be a hero in culture. You can't save yourself. Um, and there is not only a savior named Jesus Christ, but there is only one savior Jesus Christ, the way, the way, the life, and the truth, no one comes to the Father except through him, John chapter 14. And so in a relativistic, pluralistic, postmodern, post-Christian culture, you are saying there is one Savior, there is one revelation of God through the Word of God, and I can see where that would incite fear. And then what else are you saying to people? You're saying, um, just like the Apostle Paul, I'm going to call you to believe. I'm going to call you to devote your entire self, everything you are, everything you want to be, to Jesus Christ. And then finally, you're asking people to declare that publicly in Christian baptism and to unashamedly do that. So I can see why that might incite fear in some of us. Um, fear is not necessarily a bad thing. God can take all things and work for the good for those who love him. What fear does, what God does when he takes fear and uses it for his glory is fear clarifies faith. It clarifies our faith or our lack of faith. Every one of us has fear, but fear is an indicator of the level of our faith. And it can often be a catalyst to move us forward towards God. Um, I think when I have fear in terms of outreaching someone or calling someone to, to turn from something that they shouldn't be a part of, that can actually be a good thing because it's a clarifying moment for me of what do I really believe? Who do I really believe in? Who am I trusting in? And, um, and I love clarity in the Christian faith. 
And spiritual courage, it's not the absence of fear. I think that's what we have to remember. Spiritual courage is not the absence of fear. It is the presence of trusting in the Lord. It is the presence of trusting in the will of God over our fear. Paul had fear. Paul had anxiety. But when the Lord came to him in a vision, he was able to look at that and say, I'm going to trust you, Lord. I'm going to trust your will. I'm going to stay at Corinth. I'm not going to be silent. I'm going to declare the message, even though these people are wanting to oppose me. I'm going to trust you more than my fear. And that gave him courage. Spiritual courage uh, is not a prayer request. It is a choice. Spirit, having spiritual courage over our fear is not an answer to prayer. It is a choice that we simply make or don't make. That is why the Bible says in the Old Testament, when um, uh, it, it says in the book of Joshua, be strong, be courageous, um, do not fear, for the Lord your God is with you. It's not pray for courage, it is simply be courageous. That's why it says in the New Testament, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, where Paul wrote to Timothy, and he said, the Lord has not given us a spirit of fear, of timidity, but of power and love and self-control. See, the Lord has already given to you a spirit of power, given to you a spirit of love, given to you a spirit of self-control amidst your timidity and my timidity and fear. And so God doesn't reward cowardice, church. Um, God is searching for people who are willing to step forward and say, I will courageously devote myself to the most important mission that God has for me, to make disciples of his son. And God will reward that, but he doesn't tend to reward cowardice. And just think, if you were to step forward and to boldly declare your faith, as we saw at the baptism, three individuals say unashamedly, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ a few weeks ago. If you were to boldly do that, um, how many other people in the church would be emboldened to speak out about their faith? See, sometimes our act of spiritual courage to declare what we really believe in inspires others. And I talked to some people at the baptism, and they said, you know, it was based upon their example of stepping forward and giving their testimony and sharing uh, at the baptism that I'm considering being baptized now as well. And so I, you never know how your courage can inspire others. In conclusion, church, uh, we need to be focused on not being distracted to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And we need to do it like Paul. We need to share the word of God. We need to testify that the Christ, the Savior, is Jesus Christ. We need to call people to believe in this gospel and to declare that belief publicly in Christian baptism. We need to come to people and say, follow me as I follow Christ, just like what Paul was doing. He was teaching, he was leading, and he's calling them to follow his example as he followed Christ. And we need to recognize that amidst that, there's going to be fear. There's going to be anxiety. And that is part of the Christian journey. But God can use that to clarify where our faith is at. God can use that to say to us, you know, um, just trust me, trust my will, and just make a choice to step forward and do what I would like you to do and do it courageously. And God will bless that. And his will will be done in your life, in my life, and through this church. 
during this time of the coronavirus event and beyond. God will bless that, and our church will be about the most important mission on this world to make disciples in his kingdom of Jesus Christ.